So we are in our series, The Way of Love, and we have two more weeks to go, and we're going to um, talk about a, one verse this morning, and then uh, next week we're going to sort of wrap up our series and um, talk about something. We're not doing like a review or anything like that. We're going to talk about something that is sort of the linchpin to this, uh, this, kind, th- this entire idea of love, what it, what it requires and, and what we need in order to do it. So you definitely don't want to miss that. Um, but this week we're talking, I want to read uh, through first uh, kind of the parts of this passage, this iconic passage that we've talked about already just because I think, you know, it's good. It's just a few verses. It's just good to like have it fresh in our minds and be reminded of it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 Uh, 4 through 6, which is what we've been in so far, explain what love is. They say, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then it goes on to where we're going to be this morning in verse 7, it says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Uh, Any time that I see the word all, or I read something like this, I immediately get overwhelmed. Uh, it's kind of like how if you're in an argument with a spouse and uh, you get in the habit of saying, you always, you never, you always, you never. That's probably not true, um, and yet it's that kind of language that we resort to. And when we hear those things, we, we, we go, okay, I know that even if I'm doing the thing they're talking about, I probably don't always do it. So what it feels like is this sort of overly simplified way of viewing things. One of the things that um, I love the most about the Bible is how practical it is, that it's actually a reflection of the things that we see played out in life around us, that even though it's thousands of years old, that we talk about it now knowing that it applies to the very reality of our life uh, because God himself created us, because it's, uh, it is a book that recounts for us uh, fallen people in a fallen world that are pursued and redeemed and rescued by a perfect and infinite God. Because that reality is uh, the reality we live in, then when we read the Bible... We're actually reading something that is not simply a romanticized or overly simplified view of the way the world is. The Bible's grounded in the real world, and yet I think that uh, so often a huge misunderstanding that people have about the Bible is that it is this romanticized view of the way that life is, right? It's just a bunch of sayings and teachings that are sort of this uh, overly idealistic almost like utopian view of the way things should be. I, for one, have a very hard time with romanticized things. And uh, and anybody who knows me knows that. Uh, Something that is like romantic, what I mean when I say romantic is I'm not talking about like being in love and wanting to kiss and hug somebody. I'm talking about uh, when something is 
a very idealized view of reality, right? A romanticized version of something is an idealized version of that thing that we know isn't probably true, but we choose to live in or to believe in or to dwell in, whether we're aware of it or not, because it makes us feel better, honestly. It kind of simplifies a life. It helps us escape a complex and sometimes exhausting world. People hear things in the Bible like love your enemies and, uh, you know, pray for those who persecute you, the teachings of Jesus, and go, well, that's, uh, that's great, uh, written by some religious leader thousands of years ago who people, you know, worshipped, and he probably led some kind of a cult, but uh, there's no way that that would work in the real world, in real life, unless you literally took a group of people and went away to live somewhere on your own and only surrounded yourself with people who believed what you believed, that there's no way that that's actually something that can play itself out in real life. One of the things that, uh, that I can't stand because I have such a hard time with this view of the world, this romanticized view of the world, is a lot of the things that we look to for motivation that to me seem just totally ridiculous, right? Probably the most classic example is that I am so sorry if I am like, uh, if I am just going to stomp all over something that you find great hope and joy in. But if, if your motivation in life comes from these posters, then I think you need more motivation in life. There are these posters, they're, they're, we kind of call them motivational posters. Oh, I gotta go back, hang on. All right, there we go. This is an example of a classic one. This is a real poster, it's some dogs, they're running, they're happy, they're, if anything, enthusiastic, and it says, passion creates energy. Strike out with joy and exhilaration and others are sure to join you. Okay, you see these posters in offices, you see them in people's offices, you see them in like waiting rooms for places, you see them in all kinds of different situations, and the idea of this is you look at this picture of these animals and all the complexities and all the stuff that, that, you, that you get caught up in, that it all kind of fades away because you look at this and you go, passion, that's what I need. Maybe if I could just strike out with joy and exhilaration that others are sure to join me. The problem is, uh, it's not that simple. And chances are, uh, if, you, uh, if you see these posters, uh, most of the time, you think, uh, I'm not really sure if, if, if that's all it takes, right? Just a, just a great idea and a simple saying. In fact, uh, in fact I'm pretty sure that if I, I wanted others to, to join me, that I would need more than joy and exhilaration. Uh, and yes, passion might create energy, but what kind of energy? And, and is it good or whatever, right? There's so much more to it. I, I prefer these, right? There's a whole other version of these posters, and they're much more realistic, right? Uh, this, this one is on motivation, and it says, if a pretty poster and a cute saying are all it takes to motivate you, you probably have a very easy job, the kind robots will be doing soon, okay? That, to me... See, see, see I'm, I can tell with this packed house that we have uh, that, that, that that resonates with people a lot more than the first one, right? There's all these posters. When, it, when, um, when they were setting up for the memorial service for Brent Burson um, the, in our fellowship center, uh, I saw one of these posters uh, in a frame on the table, and it, was, it just said sarcasm. And I was like, 
This is why I liked Brent so much, because as a counselor and a therapist, uh, Sue was telling me he had these all over his office. If you walk into a counselor's office and sit down and they have uh, enthusiasm with a bunch of running dogs, I would recommend maybe you consider walking out, because probably the advice they give you might be a little overly simplistic. It may be a bit romanticized, right? No, if you walk in and they have something like this up on the wall, you go, I have a feeling that this person knows what the real world is like, knows what real life is like, and the fact that ultimately Ultimately, robots will destroy us and take all of our jobs, so enthusiasm is the last thing that we should have. Uh, This passage, this verse, this simple verse, where Paul goes on and follows up all these qualifications on love, saying it bears all things, believes all all things, hopes all things, endures all things, to me, falls so quickly into that category because I get stuck on on this. And and here's why. I feel torn on it. All week I have felt torn on this verse. And I felt torn on it because on one hand, it reflects a very real understanding of exactly what happens when you try to love people. But on the other hand, the advice is so ridiculously lofty and oversimplified that you almost immediately dismiss it, right? And you say there's no way that that's actually a way that a person could live. How in the world could we actually bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things? And and what even is this talking about? Because it just sounds so extreme. Well, I'm going to walk through these very briefly because there's not a lot to them. And to spend too much time on them is to overcomplicate them. And you're all like, you're just realizing that, Ed, who gives hour-long sermons? Yes, I am. And I'm actually going to work through them not in the right order because I'm sure I can complicate this. Um, But there's one specific that actually gives us an indication of how we're to view all of these. The first one is simple. Love bears all things. Uh, This word, if you translate it, it means it's you're putting up with something that's annoying, something that's difficult. Uh, So the moment that you're in a situation and it begins to get annoying and difficult and uncomfortable, you have a choice. You either bear that situation, meaning you stay in the situation and you try to get through it, you try to resist it, or you simply walk away, you leave, right? Uh, When we say bear something, you think of like a weight, you think of a burden, uh, and the idea is, are you going to lift up and hold up that weight and that burden, or are you just going to put it down and walk away and say, nope, don't need to hold it, right? Uh, when, when, the, when the gnats are buzzing all around you, are you going to go inside to get away from the mosquitoes and the flies, or are you going to stay out there in them and, and bear them, right? When the water is, think of like, th- when you think of bearing all things, uh, in fact, when we think about it in the context that Paul means it, because as we've said, uh, this passage on love is written to people about how they're supposed to love each other in the church, how they're supposed to love the members of even their own family, okay? So this isn't about loving the, the, the people so far outside of even your own sphere of those who believe the same things you do. This is about loving the people who claim to believe what you believe, who are a part of your life, who are a part of your community every day or regularly, so, so when I think of a mental image of bearing all things, and I think of even a church, basically, I think of a church with, like, a roof that has, like, a hundred leaks in it, and water is just dripping down all over everywhere. And, and water drips, uh, the, the, the church that, I, um, that Ellie and I were a part of, um, 
um, before this uh, Creekside, we had a kind of a bad roof, and there would be these Sundays where this drip would come, and it was right in the middle, in the center of uh, the sanctuary. And like, we would have to move a chair and put a bucket down there, and whoever got stuck sitting next to that bucket uh, got splashed on throughout the service when it rained. Now, it almost never rained. It was California, because you're like, why would you endure that? It's California. We always forgot about it, right? But like, to bear something that Paul's talking about is like to come into a church and to sit down on a Sunday and then immediately to have water start dripping down all over everybody and to say, I think I'm going to stick this out. I'm not going to move seats. I'm not going to move over, right? In fact, there's probably all sorts of ways that this perfectly describes the way that we feel about people in the church, right? Maybe you become a part of the church. You become a part of community. You sit down. Water starts dripping on your head. You're like, I don't think I'm going to be next to that person. You move over a couple rows. Let's try it over here. The water starts to drip. You go, I don't think so. You move over somewhere else. You go, uh, the air vent is on me. This is very uncomfortable. You move somewhere else. You go, the lights are too bright on me. This is the way that we handle even relationships in the church, is that when the discomfort comes, the annoyance comes, the, the, the thing that makes it hard to be there, we simply don't want to bear it. And so, so Paul is saying, very simply, saying love for these people means you're willing to withstand these things, to work through them and to deal with them. You don't just get up and move and walk away and say, God doesn't want me to be in that situation with that person. Now, what's also interesting is that this, he's using pretty broad language, which means this is like subjective. He's saying whatever is a burden to you. Whatever the thing is that you would have to bear, right? Because things are different for all of us, right? Somebody might love the person sitting next to you to death, and you might think this person is like nails on a chalkboard to me. This person frustrates me because of the choices they make, the way they talk, the way they act, their personality, whatever, the way they sing, I don't know. And because of that, you feel like you have to bear it. He's saying whatever it is, love bears all things, right? And, and really all things... If we're going to apply it in a realistic way, even more than things, it means people. Love bears these people. It says, I will bear all people. He goes on and he says, love hopes all things, right? Uh, hope is, uh, is, is simply to look forward with confidence to a thing, to, 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 to want good for something, And when he says that love hopes, wait, did I say I skipped believes, right? Did I? That's the one I'm supposed to skip. Yes. Okay, good. I See, I, I confused myself. It's so complicated. That's the one that I'm skipping. Okay, I'm like, all right, this makes sense now. So I want to talk about believes as the last one because it kind of paints a picture for the rest of these. Because it says love bears all things, love, hopes all, love believes all things, and it hopes in all things. Now, uh, the truth of people is that they bring with them weight. They bring with them difficulty at times, like we talk about when we say bearing. Not all people are the wind beneath our wings lifting us up and making us soar. And to bear people and to bear things is to say that I know that when the irritation comes and the pain and the discomfort come, um, I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to stick around to hope is to say that I believe and I trust and I live as though something good is coming. So to hope in all things or in all people is to say that I trust 
that ultimately there is good at the end of the road for this person and for me, for, for the relationship that I have with them and for their very life, right? Because a lot of times we just see people in our lives, people in our families, and we go, yeah, I don't have a lot of hope for them or that situation. And, uh, you know, what can I say? I'm just being realistic, right? I'm just being honest. To, to hope in all people and in all things is to, is to have a pretty simplified view of the way that people are. He says, love hopes all things. And this word hopes is a spiritual word. It's a trusting and a confident hope. To have hope for somebody is to, is to want for their best and to choose to focus on the fact that you know that in Jesus this person uh, can be even someone that you can ultimately have hope for and hope in. How hard is it to simply hold out hope for people in our lives, for people in community, for people in our own family. We know that when we're forced to hope for them. Like we see this better actually for people in our family because we kind of feel so much more connected and obligated, right? We're, we're, they're a part of our lives I mean, whether we want them to be or not. And so we're actually forced to hope um, if we go beyond bearing because the fact is bearing is just the initial man anytime that you have to deal with people you're probably going to be bugged or annoyed and they're going to rub you the wrong way because people we're kind of rough on each other right that's like step one and step two is if I decide that I'm going to bear through things with you then that's going to require hope that's going to require hope and confidence in the idea that there's like something good in the end that comes from that and yet when the people in our immediate family or in our close family or in our community around us that we don't really have a choice to be around, when they are difficult because they bring in burdens and we don't want to bear them, usually we're still kind of have to, right? We can't get away from them. And so when we have to, that means we're required to have hope. And what we find in ourselves is that we don't have a lot of hope for people. And so Paul goes on and he says, like, love actually hopes in all things and with all people. You are to look at one another and have hope for each other to say, I actually believe and have confidence that something good can come from you and your life, even though you may be living the way that you are right now. We think of hope as kind of like a last-ditch effort, right? I hope, right? I hope that thing happens, kind of like I have no stake in it. The, this word that's translated the biblical definition of hope like this is actually very different from that. It is, it is like a very confident, very trusting sort of hope. I'm willing to put weight in that thing because that's what we do in relationships with people, right? I'm willing to put weight into this relationship because I'm willing to hope in it. I'm willing to hope for it for all things. The last thing that he says, he says, uh, love endures all things. So if you continue to bear up, if you continue to bear all things and it stays difficult and you continue to suffer under it in a relationship with another person, with the people around you, with the community you're a part of, in your family, you are forced to do this thing we call enduring. And enduring is like an ongoing sense. Now, this word is an incredible word. To, to demonstrate endurance and to put up with comes from the Greek word, um, hippomeno. And hippomeno uh, is sort of like a, a hyper-powerful example of, um, of the word meno, which we hear about in the New Testament in John 15 when, when Jesus is telling his disciples, remain in me, abide in me. That is meno. 
And this word hypomeno means to endure, to continue remaining and abiding, to continue being connected even when it gets really difficult. Jesus is saying in a general sense, remain in me. And why he's saying that, to abide in me, is he's saying to his disciples, stay connected to me no matter what happens. And what does he say will happen if you don't? You will wither like a branch that's disconnected from a vine and you will begin to die. Anytime that you stop remaining in me and abiding in me, you will begin to wither and die. Paul says to the church, he says, you are to uh, endure all things. And by enduring all things, you are to, in this sort of intense way, remain. Because sometimes we abide and we remain because it's easy. And other times we are forced, we we remind ourselves to remind and and, and, uh, to abide and remain when it gets difficult, when there's a burden. And that is what requires endurance. If I go on a run and I decide to run 10 miles, the first mile is the easiest mile. The, the second mile, man, the second mile is probably the easiest style because the first mile is like awful and then you start to get a little bit comfortable and then it's just endurance after that. Then it takes something different. Simply put, love does not walk away. It is so difficult for us to endure, especially if we're the kind of people who say, I need to see that this relationship is going somewhere. I need to see that there's a point to bearing up under a person and the things that they bring that are difficult, to bearing up in a community, to, to, to enduring in a relationship with somebody in my life, even somebody very close to me, even if it's a child, even if it's a spouse, right? I need to know that it's going somewhere. If, if the endurance accomplishes something, if it changes them or something, if it, if it leads somewhere, then maybe I'm all for it. But if it doesn't, then you're just telling me to do something that I know I can't have any hope in. And when we're called to endure and, and, and to bear and to hope, we're being called by Paul to do something that is an active thing, meaning we don't do it passively just kind of hoping that something good might come of it. By doing this, he is saying, you are actively helping this person in this situation. Because, of course, one of the things that we would say right off the bat is, is but if people in my life, people in my community, people in my family are giving me reason to walk away. How does it help them if I just say, I'm going to stay with you, I'm going to hope, I'm going to bear, I'm going to endure, no matter what you do, no matter how far gone you seem to be, no matter how all the evidence points contrary, how is it good for you if I just keep maybe reinforcing all of what you do by being around and being there? And Paul's saying these things in a very active way. He's saying, by doing this, you're getting involved in something that is actively going to have the biggest impact that you can have. The last thing that he says, or at least the last thing I want to point to, is the one that I got really hung up on this week. And it was when he says, love believes all things. And the reason is, as you can tell, I looked up all these words And when I looked up believes, I thought, believes, you know? Because for me, that is the hardest. That is at the heart of a relationship with a person that I need to really endure with. If I don't believe in someone, if I don't believe in the things that they do, if I don't believe in the things that they say, 
if I don't, if I don't, if I don't believe in them in some core way, it is very hard for me to endure a relationship with them, to, to hope for that person. But apparently I'm supposed to believe. So I, I, I look at this word up and I interpret it, and like in every other context that you find it, this word is throughout the Bible, and this word is used for spiritual things. You know how like Christianity is crazy because it's like all about just believing in Jesus, right? Just believe and have faith, and if you do, then you will be forgiven. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son for whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That belief is strong, right? We say, why is it just that you believe? What, is that, like, what does that even mean? It means that you really have confidence in and believe in this person of Jesus. It means that the longer you live as a Christian, the more you're going to depend on Jesus. Because you recognize that in and of yourself, with yourself, by yourself, you uh, don't have a chance at true life, at life with the Father, at being a part of the kingdom of God. There's nothing you can do. There's no way that you can earn it. There's no way that you can be good enough. There's no way that you can overcome the sinfulness that is within you. And so you've got to believe not in yourself, but in Jesus. And if you truly believe in him, that means you trust in him. That means your hope is in him. That means you're willing to endure for him. This word, believe, is a strong word. It is a word that we would say means a lot, especially uh, to a Christian trying to understand what it means to be a Christian. And that very same word, translated the very same way, is the word that Paul uses when he says it believes all things. How could that be, though? Are we supposed to truly just believe in everyone the way that we're supposed to believe in Jesus? Does that mean that to be a Christian, it means that the power is in me and my ability to believe, right? Because at first, this is what I'm thinking. I'm going, well, if that's true, because that, at first, when it's just believe this much about Jesus, it's like, well, that's then because Jesus is so great, right? Uh, but then if it's believe, all, believe in all things, believe in all people, then, then that means that I'm the one who's supposed to just be so good at believing in people that it's like the power of that belief isn't in the object of the belief, but it's in me. Right? So the power of the belief isn't in uh, Jesus himself, the one I believe in. It's in me because I'm so good at believing in things, at really trusting in things. Is that what this is talking about? Because that's what I would have to be if I can really believe in all things, in all people, right? I mean, the, uh, is it not saying then that like we should just be people who believe without thinking much about it at all? Uh, no, because uh, in Proverbs it says the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. We're supposed to be people who don't just believe everything. In fact, Paul himself has a pretty brutal view of people. Paul himself uh, paints a pretty low picture of most people, including, first and foremost, him. He says in 1 Timothy, when he's writing to Timothy, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. And Paul's a pretty great guy. He's done quite a bit of good things. He's a real example to follow. 
And yet he says he's the worst of sinners. So if people are that bad, if people are that messed up, and, and I'll say that, that, that one of the things that I see that is uh, practical and true about Scripture is that it gets people right. If that's the case, then how in the world do we believe in people this much? Uh, because, because this is the point that I get to when I check out. This is the point I get to when I say, this sounds to me like something that would be on a poster that I would walk right by. This sounds to me like an overly simplified, overly romanticized, overly idealized view because everything I know about people tells me I can absolutely not believe in everybody. And that believing in somebody who is blowing it and is making my life difficult and is part of the problem and not the solution or has screwed up their life and mine is not going to be the thing that helps them and fixes them. How could we possibly believe in a person that we have to bear up under? The point of what Paul is saying is this. He is saying there is only one person that you could ever possibly believe in like this, and it is Jesus Christ. And if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, then that doesn't just mean that you believe that you can trust him for your own life. It means that you can trust him in the lives of others. What Paul is saying here is that we treat each other and we look at one another and we see Jesus. We say, I can believe in you, not because of you and not even because of, of, of the things I liked about you initially that I'm beginning to doubt now that the relationship has gotten hard. I can believe in you. I can believe for you even if you don't believe for yourself because you have Jesus behind you and in front of you. I mean, in the very same way that we talk about us getting to heaven and standing there before God and, and hoping that as he sees us, he sees Jesus instead of us because we are not good enough to be in his presence and that Jesus stands in our place. In the very same way, Paul is saying that, that we can believe in one another if Christ is a part of our life and their life, if Christ is the power, and the great news about it is that even if a person has never heard the name of Jesus before, no matter how messed up they are, no matter how difficult things are with them, they are not our enemy because we know that there is no way that they can be so far gone that Christ cannot ultimately redeem them. Do you see why it's so important here? That if you understand who Jesus really is and what he can really do, and hopefully you've seen some of that in your own life even, if you really understand and begin to grasp who he is and how big of a deal that is, then these things are not just sayings that reflect some overly idealized view of a fantasy world that everybody knows isn't real but they describe the way that we can actually see the world because the circumstances are now completely different. The circumstances, the actual stuff that we're presented with, that we base all these decisions in our relationships on, are completely, fundamentally different when we know that Jesus ultimately can save anyone. That Jesus ultimately can heal any relationship. 
that Jesus can ultimately do so much in the life of a person that we can actually have hope even when it seems like there is no way that we can continue hoping in that person. There's only one person that you could ever fully put your hope in, and that's Jesus. There's only one person that you could actually endure all things, and that is Jesus. The reason why we tell people to hope in Jesus is because there is nothing else that we should place our hope in because it will fail us. The the reason why when people follow Jesus, we tell them to promise they're going to follow him for the rest of their life, and then we tell them to get baptized in front of everybody else to say publicly that they're going to follow him for the rest of their life, not because we believe in making reckless, dramatic, uh, bold, uh, hyperbolic statements in front of people that somehow that's going to solidify it. It's because we know that you can endure with Christ every day for the rest of your life because He will never fail you. There is nothing that He can do that will ultimately mean that you cannot continue to follow Him because He is so good and He is so perfect. We all know that person in our life who has fallen off the wagon again and again and again and again and has said every time, this is the last time. This is the time that I turn my life around. This is the time that I get serious. And, and, and we've been a part of that again and again and again. And we know at a certain point that we need to be done that at this point, nothing's going to change it, nothing's going to happen. And frankly, the more involved you are with them, the more it seems to just mess up your life. We know that person whose who's abrasiveness, their, their arrogance, are repelling you from them. It's like this horrible, nauseating odor that keeps you from getting even near them. And you think, the only way that I could possibly want to be a part of community is to, is to pretend like that person or people like that aren't even a part of that same community. You know those in the church, those in your own family who seem to be the very enemy of the thing that you care the most about. They literally represent the opposing side. I am amazed at how narrowly uh, we often uh, allow ourselves to view other people. We uh, want to believe that so many people uh, disagree with us so fundamentally that they're our enemy. Even people in our own community, our own families. I've talked with people uh, and felt at times like, It seems like you want me to uh, believe the opposite of what you believe. It seems like you're trying to prove to me how, maybe how far apart we are, rather than how close we could ever be. Because we actually have a remarkably narrow view of the number, the kind of people that we can actually be in community with, the kind of people we even want to be a part of our family. We're better, like we said last week, uh, uh, a very practical way of seeing love, right? 
that, that we actually find that we rejoice more in, in bad things that people do because it means that we don't have to love them. It means that we don't have to try harder ourselves to be better. It means that we can just say, as long as I'm not like that, I'm part of the solution, not the problem. We are so prone, many of us, to say, uh, to try to find reasons to say, I cannot bear up, I cannot endure, I cannot hope, I cannot believe in this person or this thing because of how clearly opposed to what is good and right, the things that I even believe and that I want for this world that they are, even if they claim to be a part of my community. Some of you have children. Some of you have teenagers, and that's kind of all, you, all I have to say if, if, if you're one of these folks. But some of you have teenagers, and you just go, man, I have given my life for this person. I have given them everything that I possibly can, and they have returned that with bitterness and resentment, with selfishness, and, or even worse, apathy, complete and total apathy for me and for everything that our family has done for them. Some of you are children who have grown up under parents who have exasperated you with the burden of the expectations they have on you and you look at them and you go, the only thing that I can do is to get away from this person and to be distant from this person and to not actually be in a relationship with this person, right? Without recognizing what it is that might even cause a person to raise a child in that way. I do not... Uh, present this verse to you as somebody who claims to know how to be good at doing it. I present this to you as somebody who has had to depend on it in order to ever be in community myself. I have and will require this very same kind of love from people in my life again and again and again until I die. I am dependent on this. You see, so many of us look at this passage and we go, I'm not sure if I can do that, if I can love that way for these other people without realizing that it is only because of this kind of love that we can ask and expect other people to love us. But until we can see ourselves as people who do ask for chance after chance after chance, forgiveness after forgiveness, although some of us have realized that it's a lot easier in a very big world to simply move on again and again and again, rather than, rather than know that we require forgiveness, know that we require endurance, know that we require hope and belief from other people to simply walk away and find new people and more people until something happens and then we move away again and go away again. I say this knowing that, that, that in order for me to be a part of community, to be a part of a family, that the people in my life who love me faithfully, especially when they don't want to, love me despite the things that I do. They love me in spite of the foolish and hurtful words that come out of my mouth. Just yesterday, I was with my kids and um, I, was, I sat my daughter down and I looked her in the eye and I got real serious and real quiet because I wanted to make sure that she was really paying attention and that I told her how hard she was making my life because I just was trying to ignore her for a couple of hours and do some things that I wanted to do. And I, and, I, and, I, and I, in thinking that I'm loving her and that I'm being a good parent to her, I, I say, you know, kind of nicely but seriously, 
Don't you understand how frustrating this is for me? Don't you understand how, how difficult it is? And can't you just uh, act your age or be the way that I know that you can be? And my daughter started to do this thing that she does sometimes where I could tell that just for like a, like a fraction of a millisecond, she started to cry and then she stopped and she fought it back because she's a very strong person. And it completely changed everything in my mind. And I hugged her and I said, I said, I don't think that you're bad. You're not bad. You're not, dad's being selfish. Dad's being frustrated. Dad's just in a bad mood. I'm sorry. That in those moments, I realized that I would take all of the relationship that I have with one of my own children and try to use it just to convince them how bad they are. When I think of how many times people have done things like that to me, if we view this as something that we have to do in relationships with people who are so awful that don't deserve us, we miss the point of it entirely. This is something that we do for people because it is something that we demand of people, because it is something that we need from Jesus himself. I was talking with a friend um, a while ago whose mother needed help because she had, gotten, um, she had gotten very old and she needed to move out of her home, had to sell a lot of things and had to kind of downsize on life, had to move to a smaller place. And it took a lot of work to, to help her mother do this. And, and, and the difficulty was her mother was essentially isolated and all alone. And the reason that she was all alone was because she had become, she had always sort of been the most bitter and resentful and negative and mean-spirited person. And so um, this meant going and helping her because there was no one else to help her. And, 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 it, and it didn't mean helping her and finding a new, meaningful, deep, loving relationship. The, the person that they knew was always in there that could finally tell them how much they loved them. No, it was the very opposite. It was, it was a painful, difficult process of endurance trying to help someone who continued to fight it, who continued to be bitter and resentful, and continued to end every day with a reminder of just how inadequate any of their help could ever be. And when I talked with them about this, they made it clear to me that the reason that they could do this wasn't because uh, they did it hoping or thinking, I shouldn't say not hoping, but did it thinking that by, by doing all of these things, they could finally change this parent, they could finally change this relationship, they could finally have something different. Uh, they did it because they saw Jesus when they looked at that parent and said, this is what Jesus wants me to do for him. I can hope and I can endure and I can believe uh, in them, not because of them, but because of Jesus himself. That is the power behind the love that we're called to give. For some of us, this is so hard because we have such a limited view of love. Where do we hear 1 Corinthians 13 again and again and again as we hear it in weddings? And why do we hear it in weddings? Because to us, this kind of love applies to the one person that we chose to, uh, that we felt was worthy of our love in this way, right? A wedding comes and we say, I want to say and do everything that I possibly can to communicate how much I love this person and how far I'm willing to go for this person. And so we read this verse in our weddings as a reminder of that. 
And as we do that, it reflects how small our view of this kind of love is. Because instead of saying, I will love in all things, I will love all people, we say, I will love one person in more things than I'll love other people. And if you've walked through marriage with, with lots of couples, you know how quickly so many of us are to say, until that person changes, right? Or until that person doesn't love me the way that I want. And then, well, obviously, I can't really fulfill all of those things that I've said. This is the thing that we do. Instead of loving all people and all things, we love very few people in, uh, you know, a fair amount of things. I think that for, for, for many of us, this does come down, in the end, to hope. The only way to see this kind of love as being possible is to actually hope for people in our community. It is to hope for the very community we live in. It is to hope for our family and hope for people when it feels like we don't have a great reason to do that. And honestly, for some of us, it isn't even living out hope that's the hard part. It's trying to get there when we don't have hope. Because many of us hear this passage and see it, and we think, I'm not sure that I feel that much hope. There's a, there's a Scottish minister um, named uh, George Matheson, and, and he wrote a few hymns, and we're going to sing one of them right now um, after this. And this hymn that he wrote, he wrote after his life, or, or at a particularly painful point in his life, uh, George Matheson, the Scottish uh, uh, minister, he was born mostly blind, and he became more and more blind until he was fully blind um, by the time he graduated from seminary. He was completely dependent upon his sister to help him basically function in life as a blind person. And there was a point in his life when he was engaged to be married to a woman um, but um, it was around that same time that he got the news that he would indeed be blind for the rest of his life, that he would be not able to be healed, that there wasn't anything they can do. And upon that news, she left him and said, I don't think that I can give my life to living life with a person who's blind. And so he's left with his sister. And then a few years later, his sister gets married. Now, in a romanticized world, we might view that differently. But in a very realistic world, his sister's wedding day was the lowest point of his life because now the one person who had cared for him and helped him, who had actually, uh, actually taken care of him, was now devoted to another person and was now beginning her new life with them. And that night he sat down and he said he was overwhelmed with the Spirit and he wrote uh, this hymn that we're going to sing after this. And he, and he still tested for many years after. He said, I don't know anything about music. I can't really understand harmony or any of those things or, or tunes. Uh, I have none of those skills. God literally just gave me these words. And if I tried to uh, do it again, it wouldn't happen. It was in five minutes that he said he wrote down this hymn. And it is a hymn about hoping in God and believing in God and trusting in God. And a very famous quote of George Matheson is this. He says, waiting with hope is very difficult. But true patience is expressed when we must even wait for hope. He says, I will have reached the point of greatest strength once I have learned to wait for hope. It is true that it is hard to live your life in a place where hope is the thing that carries you through. Hope is something that has yet to come, not the thing now. But I think that this is so true that the difficulty for many of us, and it's why we get stuck on passages like this that seem so lofty, is that we go, I'm not even at the place yet where I have the hope 
in community, in my family, in these people, especially in a time like this, when we all feel so lousy about everything. We will have reached the point of greatest strength once we have learned to even be able to wait for hope itself. Let's pray. Father, it is such an encouragement to know that we can have this kind of love if you are the very source of our life. But for many of us, this is actually a disheartening thought because we, we find a lot of license and comfort in not having this kind of love. We, we believe that, uh, that it's just simply too exhausting, it's too costly, that it's not realistic, Lord. God, your word and the gospel itself is often seen as one of the most pessimistic and yet hopeful things that a person encounters. It's certainly, to the ears of a person who doesn't know it, much more pessimistic than they thought it would be and far more hopeful than they ever thought it would be. Lord, would you help us to see in the pessimism of that the reality that you know your children, that you know us and our hearts, what we're capable of and what we're prone to. Would you fill us with a hope that carries us through, Lord? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.